Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on the Eden Podcast. My name is Daniel Latondo. I'm the lead pastor of Eden Church. Today you're listening to Happy, a series about God's unlikely plan for a meaningful life. I hope this series helps you to live with greater hope for the future. Let's get started. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to, to be here today. I've been texting with Daniel this morning, and he just wanted to let you know that he's been praying for you guys as well. And um, But my name is, is Philip Patterson, as he said, and I am here today. Um, I, I lead a movement in the area called Foster the Bay, and we've been in partnership with Eden Church. So I've been here a couple of times in the past. I love coming to Eden. I love seeing just the evolution of what God is doing here at this church. And um, But I lead a movement called Foster the Bay, and Foster the Bay is a coalition of churches like Eden, um, that are really passionate and, and care deeply for vulnerable children in foster care in the Bay Area. Um, I'm excited to be here to share with you for a, a few minutes, but before um, I jump into it, let me just start with a story, if I could. Before we dive into God's Word, let me share a story. Uh, let me tell you a, a, about a, a beautiful little girl. Uh, and just within hours of being born, this little girl was placed into foster care. And uh, by the time she was three months old, she'd already been cared for by four different moms. Um, statistics tell us that the outlook on this little girl's future is pretty bleak, right? We know that 71% of girls who age out of foster care will be, will be pregnant by the time they're 21. And half will be unemployed in their mid-20s, a third will be on the streets, half will end up with a substance addiction, right? There's a world of statistics that are fighting against this little girl. Um, but a couple of years ago, my wife and I started praying and we, uh, we decided that this little girl's story won't end like that. And we decided to, to, to step in. We, we invited this little girl into our home. We began to foster this little girl. And I wish, I wish that I could show you her picture and I could tell you her name because I want you to be able to see how beautiful and how well she's doing today. I can't because of privacy loss. Um, but I can, I can tell you that within um, the next year or so, God willing, we'll be moving from her foster family to her forever family. And we'll be adopting her. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're, we're really excited about that. Um, but here's the deal. Um, like this little girl, that's just one of literally hundreds of kids that enter into foster care in Santa Clara County every single year. Um, and every one of these kids, just like our little girl, uh, has a name and has a story. And we know that every one of their stories matters to God. And because their stories matter to God, they matter to us. Uh, let me tell you about a couple other kids. Let me tell you about a, a brother and a sister. And um, when, when this brother and sister were, were born, they were twins, they were uh, just almost right away removed from their family because of this like, extreme domestic violence. And the little girl was placed in the city with kind of a well-off family, and the little boy was placed in kind of the rural farm area. And the little girl would gr grow up to just have a big heart for what was going on around her. Actually, she would grow up and she would actually enter into public service. And the little boy would, would grow up as well just having a big heart for what was going on around him, and he would enter into the military service. And the little boy would actually grow up to become a hero. In fact, you've probably heard of him. Uh, he, would, he would grow up to become a hero, not just because of, you know, he saved some of his fellow soldiers or, you know, even because he saved his country. This little boy would, would go on to save the universe. And this happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'll give you a second to catch up. That's right, I just told you the plot line of Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> some of you are like, oh my gosh. No, nope, that, was, that was Luke and Leia Skywalker. All right. <laughs> My, my buddy Chris Kandaya did a TED Talk recently on foster care and adoption, and he told that story. And he said, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, when you think about how many characters in our most well-loved, most popular stories have similar experiences to that. Like Luke and Leia are not alone in the film industry. Think about it for a second. Spider-Man, 
adopted by his aunt, right? Uh, Superman, adopted. Uh, you know James Bond was adopted. Do you know that? Um, Batman, who knows what happened there, right? Like, he was with his butler. We don't know exactly what the situation was, but somehow that was okay. Um, <laughs> think of it. Guardians of the Galaxy, Lemony Snicket, right? The kids were moved around. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the Pevensey kids were fostered during the war. Harry Potter, I watched that movie last night with my kids. Harry Potter was fostered terribly, mind you, by the Dursleys, but he was fostered. Now, it, it's interesting when you think about it. It seems as if the filmmakers and storytellers and great you know, novelists have discovered something incredibly important. It seems that they, they've, they've, they've discovered that even if kids walk through incredibly heartbreaking, difficult, traumatic experiences, that they still have a hope for their future, that they are not without hope, right? It, filmmakers and storytellers have discovered that someone's history does not necessarily determine their destiny. That what was once broken can be made whole. What's so fascinating to me about that, and why I tell you that today, is it's not just, it doesn't just make for a good plot line. It's not just the making of a good movie. Right? That's, that's at the heart of Christianity. That's at the heart of what we believe as Christians. That although it seems like everything is falling apart and disintegrating around us and broken and dark, that there is still hope for our future. There is still hope for healing and life and light and joy and peace and justice. That's at the heart of Christianity. So Eden has been in a series, as Pastor Daniel said, where you guys have been walking through some of Jesus' most famous teachings. And um, those teachings, we often call them the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in Matthew, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 today. We're going to continue that conversation, and we're going to continue to unpack that idea that I've just been, been sharing with you. We're going to unpack that together. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can follow along up here on the screen. I'm just going to go ahead and read the, read the text to you in its entirety. I'm read four verses today. Matthew chapter 5. Let me just read them here. It says this. This is Jesus talking to his followers. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so there are three things that Jesus is going to tell us here in these four verses that I think are worth pointing out today. Three things, and we're going to go through them one by one. And the first one is this, that this, we live in a world that needs salt and light. The second, is, he tells us, is how we're going to experience that salt and light as a world, how we're going to experience it. And then third, what the impact of that salt and light will be. Okay, so let's look at the first one. He says, we live in a world that needs salt and light. What in the world does that mean? Okay, salt... In the, the ancient world, in the Near Eastern world, was, was uh, used primarily as a preservative. Even more than a seasoning, seasoning, like we use it today, it was primarily used as a preservative. We know that because they didn't have freezers back then. So if you had a big slab of meat, the only way that you're going to keep that from immediately going bad is if you just douse it with salt and it acts as a preservative. So follow me here. You put salt into that which would ordinarily decay and it would keep it from breaking down. You follow me? You put salt into that which would ordinarily decay, and it would keep it from breaking down. So what's Jesus saying? Well, we live in a world that 
is breaking down. We live in a world that's, that, that, is, that tends towards decay. And we know that that's true for virtually every area of life, right? We know that's true in the world around us. You can look outside and you can see the, the trees and the grass and we look at our body. Like our bodies break down. Grass will die. Flowers wilt. Rocks, given enough time, will turn to sand. And that's not just true of the world around us. That's true of our relationships as well, right? Unless you're actively investing, like example, your marriage relationship, actively investing in your marriage relationship, it will, it will begin to fall apart, right? I know that. I've been married for almost 15 years. When we're not actively investing in our marriage, things go downhill. It's not like when you, when you just kind of stop investing in your marriage, like things move into a neutral state. That doesn't happen. I can tell you that. It doesn't, you don't move into a neutral state. Things begin to fall apart. They go downhill. That's true for society as well. Like you turn on the news and you're going to see war and crime and racism and death and divorce. It's kind of a depressing way to start a message, I know. All right. But this is a new information too. It's like we know this, right? Even if you're not a Christian here today, you understand this is common knowledge. G.K. Chesterton was an author last century who said that, he said that the, uh, the that brokenness and the fallenness of our world is the one empirically verifiable doctrine in the Bible. It's the one thing you can prove just by looking around you. You can totally, it's, it's, it's empirically verified when you just simply open the newspaper. If you open the newspaper, you, you turn it on, you, you open your news on your phone or whatever you do these days, like, what would you have seen? Houses being destroyed, 13 killed at Thousand Oaks. Our, our, our world is broken and it's falling apart. And Jesus is saying here that we need salt. We need a preservative, something that would enter into the brokenness and keep it from falling apart. Something that would keep it whole. In the same way, Jesus says we need light. So apparently, uh, prior to this, we've been living in darkness. We've been living without lights, right? So we've been living in darkness. Well, what does that mean? Some of you might have heard of a guy named Ernest Shackleton. He was a really famous British explorer. About 100 years ago, he very famously got stranded in Antarctica and, uh, for months at a time. And he said uh, that out of all of the dangers and the hardships that he experienced, including starvation, including freezing temperatures, he said the hardest thing that he faced was the darkness. Because in the South Pole, what happens is the sun goes down in the middle of May and doesn't come back up till July. So this is like this stark pitch blackness. And he said in that kind of darkness, you just go, you go crazy, you go mad. He said because you can't, you can't see in front of you, and so you, like, you, you lose all sense of direction, you have no sense of direction. And you don't, know, you don't know what's around you, right? You, you don't know what's beside you or behind you. Like, that's terrifying, isn't it? So you have, like, no sense of security. And he said, you, you even begin to, like, you can't look at yourself in a mirror. You forget to what you even look like. You, he said, it's like you're losing your sense of identity. No sense of direction. No sense of security. No sense of identity. Jesus is saying, like, this is true of our spiritual condition. We've been, we've been living in darkness, and we are desperate, desperate for some kind of light to break through. And again, I know this, this could come across a little offensive, especially if you're here today, this is your first time, and you're just here kind of checking things out, trying to figure out what this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing is all about. And first thing you hear this guy say is, okay, your life is falling apart, your world is falling apart, you're living in darkness, and you need someone or something to rescue you. I know that's offensive, but can I just... I'll push back and just say that I think you get this to some degree. Every person in this room, regardless of where you are, 
on your spiritual journey, I think every one of us gets this to at least some degree. I'll even give you an example of why I think that. Think about the stories that we continue to celebrate. Think about the stories that, that most deeply resonate with us. Why is it that generation after generation after generation, we continue to tell these stories about these damsels in distress, you know, locked in the, the dark castle in the, in the tallest tower, enslaved by a dragon, and all hope seems lost. But just, but just wait, because in comes riding a knight in shining armor, and he does battle with the evil one, and he rescues the damsel in distress, and they ride off together in the sunset happily ever after. Why is it that generation after generation we continue to tell that story? We repackage it and tell that same story over and over and over and over again to one another. Tim, Tim Keller, a pastor, talked about this and how many stories he recognized. And just think about this. Sleeping Beauty. What does Sleeping Beauty tell us? Sleeping Beauty tells us that one day, that, that, that death will, won't have the final answer. Death will not be the end. That one day a prince is going to come and kiss us and wake us up out of our sleep after he defeats the evil one. Cinderella. Cinderella tells us that, that one day a prince is going to come and rescue us from our life of oppression and make us royalty. Beauty and the Beast. Maybe, maybe there's a beauty out there that will see past all of our ugliness and our beastliness and will come and will, and will kiss us and, and, and make us new, like give us new bodies, make us from something that was beastly to something that's glorious. Peter Pan. Like maybe, just maybe, there's somebody out there who will take us by the hand and will fly away with us into a land where we'll never grow old. Like we could just keep going story after story after story after story. One of my favorite examples of this is The Lion King. I think this is so fascinating. You guys remember? You all have seen The Lion King. Okay, I know it's old, but... Um, okay, what does Lion King tell us? Lion King tells us that when the rightful king is sitting on the throne that the land will live in peace and harmony and justice and light. But when the evil one comes and takes the throne, everything falls apart. You know what's so fascinating about this? Think about this for a second. When the artists who created that movie made those scenes where the evil one is on the throne, do you remember how they like, portrayed the scenes that like, everything was dark and desolate? Do you remember that? It was dark. All the light was gone. All the joy and the harmony and the justice was gone when the evil one has the throne. But you know what else Lion King tells us? That one day the son of the king is coming back. And he's going to do battle against the evil one. And he's going to take back his throne. And when he does, the rains will come and wash away all the desolation. And the sun will break through the clouds. And everything will be made new. Everything will be right. The light will be there. The peace, the justice, the harmony, the joy. Why do we keep telling the same story over and over and over and over again? And we keep paying $37 a ticket to go see it in the movie theaters over and over again. Could it be because we, we know that ultimately this is what we need? It's like the, the deepest longing of our heart. So when my little girl, my, my daughter who's six right now, when she tells me one day, Daddy, I wish there was a real prince who would come and, 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 and rescue me and make me royalty. I wish there was a real Superman who would come into this world, come from another world with powers to fight evil. I, I wish there was somebody who could really come and take us to a land where we'll never grow old. You know what I can tell her? I can say, sweetheart, the stories are true. They're true. There is a hero. There is a prince. It's true. There is a light that will come and break into the darkness. 
You know, all throughout the scriptures, God, God likens himself to light or to fire. Some of you have seen that before. When, when God meets Moses, where did, he meets him in a burning bush, right? In, a, in the flames. When, Isaiah says that God is a consuming fire. Um, when, when God leads the Israelites through the wilderness, he leads them in what? A pillar of fire. Do you remember that? So the question then was why? Why does God liken himself to light or to fire? I was, we were talking about this in my small group a couple weeks ago. And I just I had this candle and I just stuck it in, in the middle of my living room floor and we just sat around for a few minutes and like five ten minutes we just said okay God said over and over and over again throughout the scriptures I'm, see that fire I'm kind of like that and so we asked like why what's what would be the significance of that like what are we what are we supposed to pull as Christians what are we supposed to understand about God through that so we just started listing off all of these ways that God might be like light so we said we don't well light enables us to see. It helps us see what's in front of us and around us and enables us to see one another more clearly. Light, uh, light brings sustenance. You know, you see those trees outside. Unless the light kisses those trees, nothing will bloom, nothing will grow. Light brings life. Light refines. Like fire, fire purifies, right? It brings purity to something. Fire, fire consumes. Um, there, there's a beauty to fire. Do you ever just sit at like a campfire and just like stare at the fire for like three hours and you just can't take your eyes away from it for some reason? Why? Because it's beautiful. There's beauty to fire. And we could just keep going. I mean, light, uh, have you ever seen like a fire? Like it's, it, it's always dancing and never stagnant. It never, it's never just stationary. God never stops moving either, does he? He never moves into that neutral state, that, that passive. He, he's always moving. He's always active. Like we could just keep going. Light brings comfort and warmth. And yet at the same time, you never just like jump into a fire to get warm, right? Like there's like a holiness to fire, isn't there? You treat fire with like a certain amount of reverence and respect. It's like this comfort and this warmth, and it's like we desperately need it for life and purity. And Jesus is telling us here, You've been living without it. You've been living in darkness. But he's telling us all of that is about to change. It's all about to change. In fact, just months before Jesus was born into this earth, months before Jesus was born, a prophecy was given by a man named Zechariah. And Zechariah would say this. He'd said, he said, uh, because of the tender mercy of God, the sunrise is about to visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. In other words, we've been, we've been living in this darkness it's, it, because of our sin. It's, it's just been the dead of night. He says, but wait, the dawn is about to break. The dawn is coming. The light is coming. And it was just a few years after that where Jesus himself would stride into the temple in Jerusalem and he would walk into this one room where they had a torch that was burning, was perpetually burning because this was the room where they would, um, that this fire would, would basically was a memorial to when that time when, when God would, was leading the Israelites through the wilderness in that pillar of fire. They would keep this torch burning at all times and remember that time. And so Jesus would walk into that room, he would stand in front of that torch and he would look out at the people and he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He said, anyone who would follow after me will, not, uh, will have the light of life and will not walk in darkness. I am the light of the world, and anyone who will follow me will have the light of life and will no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is the light. He is that hero. He is that savior that we've been so longing for. He is the beauty. He is the one who will take us by the hand and will take us to a land where we'll never grow old. 
He is the one that is making all things new. It's Jesus. There is a savior. There is a hero. There is a prince. That offer that he made, he said, anyone who will follow after me will walk in the light of life and will no longer walk in darkness. That, that offer is true today. It's just as true today as it was when he made that statement. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how things are, seem to be falling apart, things seem to be so dark, there is light available. There is salt available. He is, he is offering to step in to, and to make whole what once was broken. He is the salt and the light. That's the first point in this. And I want to share today. It's Jesus. Secondly, Jesus tells us how the world is going to experience his salt and light. And this is what it says in verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, you, followers, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, that totally contradicts what I just told you. Okay? I just said he is the light, right? He stood up and he said, I am the light of the world. He was talking about himself. And then he's just told his followers, you are the light of the world, which is totally confusing. Unless, of course, you keep reading. Because then what you're going to see is he tells us in this same, these same verses, he tells us what kind of light we are to be. Because Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're, you're, you are the light of the world. You're like a sun or you're like a star. Because those things have light in and of themselves, but that's not what Jesus says. He says you're like a lamp. You're like a lamp. That's what he says. And we know that lamp, lamps don't produce light, do they? They don't have light in and of themselves. They can only hold light. Lamps don't produce light. They hold light. In the same way, you and I can be the light of the world. You and I are called as followers of Jesus to be the light of the world. And we can only do that if we have been lit up by Jesus. If the light of the world is living within us, then we can shine as lamps. The way in which God has chosen to advance his kingdom, his light in this world, is through men and women like you and like me. Men and women who have been lit up. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are going to be my voice and my heart to a hurting and a broken people, to a lost people, a dark land. You are to be my hands and my feet to engage those who are vulnerable and poor and marginalized and in need. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And that those who were listening to Jesus, his early followers, they got this. To some degree, they weren't perfect, but they, to some degree they got this. And the world was radically changed. The early church radically uh, changed the world as we know it. Uh, in fact, did you know that the early Christian church, who grabbed a hold of this idea of being the salt of the earth and light of the world, the early church actually grew on average by 40% per decade for 300 years. Isn't that crazy? Think about that. The early church grew on average by 40% per decade for 300 years. So you might think, well, that's not that crazy. I mean, think about who they had preaching. <laughs> like Peter, Paul, James, John, like these guys who were, like, were eyewitnesses of these unbelievable things. Of course they grew. Right? Think about how dynamic their messages would have been. But that's not how they grew. You couldn't do gatherings like this, big gatherings like this. Um, there was too much persecution. You oftentimes had to meet in secret. They couldn't do gatherings like this. You know how they grew? It wasn't because the outside world was watching what Christians did on a Sunday morning. It was watching what they were doing every single day of their life. The way that they loved one another. In particular, the way that they loved the poor and the broken and the marginalized. Those who were falling apart and those who were living in darkness. And in fact, I'll give you one example of this. Uh, there's a, there are written accounts of this. Uh, Julian, who was one of the, the late Roman emperors in the Roman world... 
uh, he, he saw the, this explosive movement of Christianity. He was seeing it take over the Roman world, and it bothered him. He didn't want this. He didn't want Christianity to spread like this. He wanted to revive paganism. And so he would build up these pagan temples and, and spruce them all up, and he would like, revive all these festivals and rituals and stuff, and he was inviting everybody in. The problem was everybody was becoming a Christian. And so he, uh, he ended up writing a letter at one point to a friend of his who was a pagan priest, and this is what he said. We have a record of this. He said this. He said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. These impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Let me just tell you what he's saying. Okay, Christianity's taking over the Roman Empire. Here's the leading political figure in the world who studied Christianity. And if you were to ask him today, like, what is the, the, the momentum behind the movement of this Christian church? Like, what is the momentum that's driving it forward and making it irresistible? He wouldn't say, well, have you seen how fun their kids' ministry is? Like, look, look, how, look how stylish their pastor is. Like, look, look at their great marketing strategy. You know what he'd say? Well, have you seen the way they take care of the poor? Have you seen, have you seen their attitude towards the vulnerable and the broken? He said that they, don't, they don't just take care of their own poor, like people that are close to them. They don't, it's not just the Jewish poor. They take care of the Roman poor and the Greek poor. They take care of people who are complete strangers to them. It's crazy. Their, their, their love and their generosity and their hospitality, it's, just, it's making their movement absolutely unstoppable. It's irresistible. The kingdom of God was advancing in unbelievable ways as a result of this. But Jesus says here in Matthew 5, but what if the salt loses its saltiness? So let's fast forward to 2018. And the Barna, Church, Barna Research Group rather, released a study a couple years ago that said that the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area Church was, the, was America's most unchurched metropolitan region. Not only that, we're also the most de-churched, which means that not only are many of our neighbors not interested in attending a church for the first time, but those who have been a part of the church, many of them are leaving. Why? That's what leaders are asking now is why? Could it be, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but I'm going to raise my hand first here. Could it be that because as Christians in the Bay Area, at times, we've lost sight of the poor? We've lost sight of the vulnerable. Could it be that we've run from the brokenness rather than into it as a preservative? Could it be that our lives are less than compelling, if we're honest, less than compelling to a watching world? The question I hope that each of us would ask today is, is my life, is our life an accurate representation of the one living within us? Is the light that we are shining out towards the watching world a reflection or a representation of the light that's within us? In fact, did you know that the word Christian actually means little Christ? When it was first, when it was first coined back in the early church, um, it was actually it was a derogatory term where the outs- outsiders would be looking in at the church and say, man, look at those little Jesuses running around. Because <laughs> all these little, they were all trying to live like Jesus. Jesus poured out his life for the broken and for the marginalized. And so his followers tried to do the same. Jesus identified with those at the bottom and he calls his followers to follow his example. Again, if you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity, I want you to see how beautiful and how unique this is.
Because when Jesus showed up and, and stood with the marginalized, this was radically different than anything else that they had seen. At that time, religions, basically their, their gods were associated with those who were at the top. Okay, because, it, in that, because they were based on good works. So if like, you did enough good things, then God was going to bless you. And so if you were at the top, it was just assumed that you were blessed by God. And so this, by, by sheer nature of their belief, like God was associated with those at the top. And then Jesus shows up, and he flips it upside down, and he says, no, 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 no. I stand with those at the bottom. I stand with the widow. I stand with the orphan. I stand with the immigrant. Think about how beautiful and unique this is. Jesus says, I stand with the widow in a male-dominated society. Jesus says, no, 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 I stand with the poor woman. Jesus says, I stand with the immigrant. In a tribal-based, xenophobic society, Jesus says, I stand with a racial outsider. Jesus says, I stand with the orphan. In a power-hungry, power-seeking society, Jesus says, no, 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 I stand with a vulnerable child who has no power. And Jesus says, and if you are my followers, you'll do the same. Anybody feeling guilty? Special of hands? All right. Okay. That's not what God is after today. You know why? Because guilt won't light you up. Guilt won't make you salty. Do you know what will? By the way, I know salty has like a different definition today, but stay with me. All right, let's stick, let's stick with our definition. Guilt won't make you salty or make you light. But do you know what will? Grace. Grace will do that. If we would remember what Jesus has done for us and the way that he met us in our brokenness. If we would let the love and the compassion and the mercy that God showed us when we were walking in darkness pour over us, just wash over our mind and our heart, it changes us. Think, think about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't just care for the poor. He became poor for us. Think, think about this for a moment. Let's, just, let's dwell on this for just a moment. There was a moment in history when Jesus took off his robes of majesty, his robes of glory, and he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into our world. And he was born as a baby, a fragile, vulnerable baby. And he was born in a feeding trough in a borrowed barn to a poor set of parents in a podunk town. And he would grow up he would, say, he would say, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I'm homeless. And when he was nearing the, the end of his life, he had one possession to his name, the coat on his back. What happened to that? It was taken from him. It was stripped off of his back, and it was, they cast lots for his garments. When he was coming into Jerusalem, in fact, he was riding in on a borrowed donkey. He'd have his last meal in a borrowed room, and he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus didn't run from our brokenness. He ran into our brokenness. In fact, he was broken for us. Jesus became poor so that I might be rich. He became vulnerable that I might be strong. There was a time in my life when I was lost and broken and beat up. And again, he ran into my brokenness and he rescued me when all hope seemed lost. When I was an orphan, he adopted me and brought me into his family. And when I think about all that God did for me, when everything seemed too dark and too fallen apart, like, it makes me want to do the same for others, doesn't it? We think about what God has done for us. Guilt won't light you up. Grace will light you up. And it changes everything.
That brings me to my third and my final point. I know I'm probably over my time, guys, and I'm sorry. I'll make this last one quick. He says this third piece is this. He told us that the world needs salt and light, how we're going to experience salt and light, and then he finally says this is what the impact of salt and light will be. Again, look at verse 15. Jesus says, you are the light of the world like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So Jesus has talked about salt, he's talked about light, and now he's talking about cities on hills. Like he's mixing all kinds of metaphors. But I don't think he is. Um, I read this week that, that oftentimes in, the, in, in, that, in kind of the Near Eastern world, like that, that uh, cities weren't often built on hills. They'd be built on the bottom of a hill. Because to build a city on a hill is really, really expensive. So they'd build on the bottom of the hill, or they'd, they'd build the cities in the, va- in the valley, like near the river. But he said, but on rare occasions, a city might be built on a hill. And, and, when that, and at nighttime, when the, that city on the hill, when all the lamps and the torches throughout the city are lit up, it would shine in all the rest of the towns and the villages for miles and miles around. It would shine just for miles and miles for people to see. And so what is Jesus saying here? I think what he's saying is this. Like, I'm calling you individually to be salt and light. Like, I'm calling you to be salt of the earth, light of the world as individual Christians. And yet I think it's more than that. I think he's saying, but you're also to be a city. You are to be a community. Like, if a group of people together are salt of the earth and light of the world, imagine how further reaching our impact could be, how much more visible this light will be to a watching world. That's why I so believe that you need to be a part of what's happening here at Eden Church. That's why the local church matters so much. Yes, we live individual Christian lives. Yes, we love the poor and we love our neighbors. But together, collectively, what can we do as a community? That's why the local church matters. That's also why we started Foster the Bay. My wife and I started fostering four years ago. We thought we can make a difference in the life of a child in foster care. But we thought, you know what? Maybe let's invite our church into it. We can make, just, we can make that much more of a difference. But then we started to say, well, what if... What if it wasn't just a family? or maybe, What if it wasn't even just one church? What if there's a whole movement of churches in the Bay Area? What if there's a whole like, alliance of churches in the Bay Area? Like, what if there was a city on a hill in the Bay Area? Like a whole movement of churches that were committed to this idea that maybe one day there could be a waiting list of families rather than a waiting list of children in need of a home. Like, what if the, what if the church collectively like, stepped in as the salt of the earth and acted as a preservative in, in, in that which was decaying and that which was broken? What if the the church became the light that was going to penetrate the darkness of what these kids are walking through? What if the the Bay Area church became known once again as the place where abused and neglected kids became beloved sons and daughters? And so I just want to say because of churches like Eden, we're seeing that vision become a reality. What started with, with one church three years ago today has just exploded over the last three years, exploded now to over 50 churches in the Bay Area across five different counties. And I, I want to give you a little bit of a glimpse of, do we, do we have time for the video? We doing okay? Okay. I got the thumbs up from Brian. That means we're all right. I want to show you a quick video, two or three minute video, just to give you an idea of what God's doing through churches like Eden across the Bay. Let's go ahead and watch this. Today in my city. Today. Today. Today in my city. Today in my city, a child will be removed from their home due to abuse or neglect. Another child will enter the foster care system and another child will be placed on a list of children waiting for a home. I've seen the headlines and studied the statistics. They say the future is grim. They say the future is grim. But we've got good news. 
but we've got good news. We believe that God redeems the most hopeless situations. That he brings beauty from ashes and turns mourning into dancing. We believe God is near to the brokenhearted. That he brings joy in the midst of grief and gives dreams in place of despair. We believe these children matter to God and that he cares about their futures. We believe that he's ready to write a new chapter in their stories. The Bible says that God sets the lonely in families, so we know that he longs for children in the foster care system to be placed into loving, supportive homes. We believe there's a church for every child. Foster the Bay is a coalition of churches. A coalition of churches is a coalition of churches. Foster the Bay is a coalition of churches committed to providing a loving home for every child in the foster care system. We dream of the day when every church will rise up and answer God's call to care for vulnerable children. We dream of the day when the long list of children waiting for a home will be replaced with even longer lists of families willing to open their hearts. We dream of the day when our cities will be transformed because the church is known as a community where abused and neglected children are cared for as beloved sons and daughters. As beloved sons and daughters. As we move toward that day, we will pray for these children and their families. We will pray for social workers and judges. We will inspire and equip our churches to step forward as foster families and support friends. We will partner with government leaders and county agencies to make this vision a reality. We will press on until there are more than enough families to meet the need. We will always protect, always trust, always hope, and always persevere. We will believe. We will dream. We will love. We are. 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 We are Foster the Bay. Isn't that awesome? Okay, I was expecting more than that. Not just like, was it a great... All right. Listen. Listen. There, this, is a Bay, this is a Bay Area movement, something that started right here in Santa Clara County that's now rapidly spreading across the Bay Area where churches are caring for what I believe is the most vulnerable population in the Bay Area. And together, because of churches like Eden and, and, and 50 other churches in the Bay Area, we've already seen 127 children placed into Foster the Bay homes. Um, and it's, it's awesome to see. Yeah, we can clap. That's awesome. Uh, because it's, it's, because it's because of churches like this that are, that, are, that are saying yes. And the thing is, though, there's much more to be done. And so I, I, I'll never show up here where I don't put out a, put out a call to, to get engaged with this. If you um, are interested in learning more about how you could be a part of that movement, I, I just want to let you know there's, there's a way, there, there's much more to be done even right here in Santa Clara County. Um, we need probably 200 plus more foster families in Santa Clara to meet the current need. And so if you're interested in learning more about becoming a foster parent or a support friend to a foster parent, I want to encourage you to take that Connect card um, that was in your programs and just write the word foster on it. And then um, what we'll do is this week we'll just send you an email or we'll, uh, you can uh, come join us at an upcoming informational meeting where you can learn more about what one of those roles that you can play. So um, I expect like three-fourths of you to start filling that out right about now. That being said, let me, um, let me just say this. Foster care is but one expression. Foster care is one expression of what it looks like to live as salt and light. Um, last time I was here, I gave a message called Remarkable Compassion. And I mentioned that the word remarkable seems, means that you're able to remark on it. Uh, so, in other words, it's worth talking about. And I actually pointed to this passage that we're looking at today, Matthew 5. The last verse that, we, that, we, were gonna, that we, we read, it says, Let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, let your light shine so much that it's worth talking about. Is your life worth talking about? 
the way that you're living a salt and light, the way that you're living a life of compassion, is your life we're talking about. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me just end our time with the blessing. I'm going to read this Franciscan blessing over us today as we close. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly and love deep within your heart. May God bless you with a holy anger towards injustice and oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work tirelessly for justice and freedom and peace among all people. May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed with those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all that they cherish, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in this world so that you're able, with God's grace, to do what others claim cannot be done. Amen.